Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in 3 Nephi 1 through 7. This is the breakdown. Things just go south for the Nephites here. Yes, and this is where the pattern of our day starts to show itself. Not so much things we've seen, but things we will see. So there will be a great sign, kind of like a day, a night, and a day with no darkness. And we will have that. And then there's going to be a period of rest, of silence, and then there's going to be destruction, and then Jesus will show his face, and then there will be peace for many years, and then there will be war. So this is kind of the pattern of the second coming, but we're going to focus mostly in these first few chapters, kind of the disintegration of their society, the falling apart, Um, they're going to take on the Gadianton robbers. But I can't pass up this opportunity in 3 Nephi chapter 1 to not tell the greatest Christmas story ever. Latter-day Saints have in our possession a Christmas story like no other, and we don't tell it very often. If your family's like mine, I'm sure you read Luke chapter 2 on Christmas Eve, and you talk about Joseph and Mary going into Bethlehem and the fact that there was no room for him in the inn, and that's a good story, and it's kind of tradition. But we have the greatest of all Christmas stories that tells us exactly what Jesus did and why he came into the world. So allow me to paraphrase. This is what I do with my family every year. I'm just going to put myself in the story, okay? So the Dunford family lives on the outskirts of Zarahemla City. It's a really good time to be a Nephite. We live under the greatest prophet who perhaps has ever lived on the planet, much less the American continent. His name is Nephi. He and his brother Nephi single-handedly ended the conflict with the Lamanites. He went down and converted all the Lamanites, and so we no longer are at war with the Lamanites. We don't worry about them slitting our throats. It's safe as far as the Lamanites go, all because of our great prophet Nephi. He has unlimited power. One day, he just, to help the people repent, he sealed the heavens, and it didn't rain for three years. That's the man we get to hear every generation conference. It's a wonderful time to be a Nephite, but it's also a miserable time to be a Nephite because with no longer fighting against the Lamanites, we've opened up trade with them, and a lot of Nephites have grown very, very rich. And the one thing we Nephites don't handle well is wealth. And so the Nephites have become very, very wicked. It's a very um, dangerous time to be a Nephite in that sense because there's a lot of pride in our society. The Gadianton robbers are infiltrating our society, and they are growing, and that's another threat against us. But that's the situation we live in. Here's the Dunford family out on the outskirts, and and I have a neighbor who's a Gadianton robber, and he's always criticizing my faith. He thinks I have easy faith. You know, I believe in a God who's going to be born somewhere else, and I will never know it. And he just says, that's easy. You'll never, ever be able to prove that. No one will ever see him because he's not going to be born here. Then one day there's a little commotion outside, and we all go outside, and there's Samuel up on the wall. There's a prophet preaching. And my Gadianton robber neighbor just looks at me and rolls his eyes like, oh my gosh, here we go again. What are you believers up to now? What's he going to say? I bet he's going to tell us to repent or be destroyed. And sure enough, Samuel says, 
Repent or be destroyed. The city will be destroyed. But then Samuel says something that changes my life dramatically. Samuel says, I will give you a sign. I will tell you how we in this continent will know that he's born in Jerusalem. The sun will go down and it will not get dark. The whole night it will be as light as noon, and that is the sign, and you will know that Jesus is born. And you're not going to miss that, are you? You're not going to miss that. My neighbor just kind of rolls his eyes like, oh my goodness, Bryce, you can't possibly tell me you believe that. You believe the sun's going to set and it won't get dark in all your life. How many times has the sun gone down and it stayed light? And I will admit, I'm a believing man. I am a believer, but I don't know how to take that. I have never, ever seen something like that. And now all of a sudden, my faith is based on, is the sun really going to go down and it stays light? Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could kind of go talk to Samuel, you know, after, after his prophecy and just kind of feel him out and say, hey, Samuel, show us your confidence. Is this really going to happen? But guess what happens to Samuel? He disappears. So let's go find Nephi, right? Let's go find Nephi. Let's confirm with Nephi that that's the sign because we trust Nephi. Well, guess what? Very quickly, Nephi disappears. And I'll admit that part of me wonders if they disappeared because this is such a supernatural thing and they don't want to be around when it doesn't happen. I'll admit I'm a little afraid, but I want to believe. I want to believe. So I'm going to hold on that the sun's going to go down and it won't get dark. Now, Samuel said five years. So no one really does anything the first year, the second year, the third year, the fourth year. But then comes the fifth year, and all of a sudden we start watching sunsets. And I'll admit, every single time that the sun sets and it gets dark, I worry a little. Is he really going to come? I believe he is. But now my faith is being really tested. Is he really going to come? Well, the non-believers see this as an opportunity to get rid of the believers. And so somehow, since they control the government, they pass a law that says, if he hasn't come on such and such a day, if the sign has not been given, then everyone who believes is going to be put to death. Now, I don't know that we pause and ponder being in that situation, but do you understand? I have a six-year-old son. I have a three-year-old granddaughter. And they're going to be put to death because of my beliefs. What do you do? Now, I'm positive there must have been a get-off-the-list possibility. I'm positive there was some way to get off the list. You know, there was in ancient Christianity, they would just say, hey, if you pinch this incense and say emperor is God, you're good to go. And, I'm sure there was something. And some like of the Christians were like, I'm, some of them were like, I'm not going to do it. And a lot of them kind of crossed their fingers behind their back and pinched it because they're like, I still believe in Jesus, but I don't want to die. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, kind of halvesies. Yeah. I'm sure there was something like that. You know, if you do this, you're off the list. And so can you just imagine my gaddy aunt and robber neighbor comes over and knocks on my door and says, Bryce, come on, this is ridiculous. Don't let your family die. 
how many years, how many, how many times has the sun gone down and it doesn't get, it doesn't stay light and you're going to let your family die because of that? You know, renounce this religion. Do whatever you need to do. Come out publicly and say that you don't believe anymore and your family will live. Now, side note, we don't know how long the time frame was between the sign being given and when the believers would have been put to death. But there's a phrase in 3 Nephi chapter 1 where Nephi prays and he basically says, verse 11, they were about to be destroyed. So knowing that the widow of Zarephath was gathering sticks to make her final meal when Elijah the prophet showed up, notice that knowing that Joseph Smith said that the darkness was about to consume at the moment of greatest alarm, I would suggest that it was probably the next day. It may most likely have come down to the final night. Now imagine that. We've got one more sunset between now and the time that the believers are going to be put to death. I think that's why Nephi's out praying for his people. So what do you do? Do you get off the list? Do you take the safe route? Or do you hold on to your faith? Well, my wife and I make the decision that we're going to hold on. We're going to trust him. And trust the prophets. And so it's our final meal before the day when the believers are supposed to be put to death. What do you talk about at dinner? What do you say when your three-year-old granddaughter looks up at you and says, Grandpa, why is everyone so sad? Why is everyone so serious? After dinner, we all go outside. Believers and non-believers, everyone is watching. And we all go outside and we watch the sun come down. Now, there must have been a moment, a magical moment, when they knew, when the sun was set and they could tell it was not getting dark. Now, what do you do in that moment? What do you do as you hold your three-year-old granddaughter, knowing that she's saved, knowing that your family's not going to die because he came? That right there, my dear friends, is why we celebrate Christmas. He came in the nick of time to save us from a certain death, to save everyone we love from death. And that's what we celebrate. And we ought to shout hallelujah. And we ought to sing those Christmas songs like no other because he came. I can only imagine in that moment when they knew the sign was being given and he was here. And they weren't going to be put to death the next day. I could only imagine the emotions in their heart, the gratitude and the celebrating and the shouting of praises to Jesus who came and saved them from death. And that's what we ought to do every Christmas. That's what we ought to celebrate. We ought to remember that Jesus came in the nick of time to save us from death. I love that. So what would I have done? And there's just part of me that's like, okay, so you get to kill me if it doesn't come, but what do I get if it comes? And the answer is, 
you just be humble and you just go about your business. I can't walk up there and say, Neener, 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 or else I'm a prideful. It's so challenging to follow Jesus because they can sling mud and you just got to take it. And that's kind of the challenge of Christianity. But I'd like to think that there might have been some Elijah moments in the King's narrative. Elijah does some mocking. You know, not that mocking is good, but I just think, man, I probably would have gone to every one of these guys and been like, hey, do you notice what's going on? And I, I, I'm a little bit snarky that way. Now, if you look in the first couple verses, like Bryce said, Nephi leaves and he gives charge to his oldest son. And then it says in verse two, Nephi, the son of Helaman, had departed out of the land of Zarahemla, giving charge unto his son Nephi, who was his eldest son, concerning the plates of brass and all the records which had been kept and all those things which had been kept sacred from the departure of Lehi out of Jerusalem. And he departed out of the land, and whither he went, no man knoweth. This kind of reminds us of Alma. But this is also, and we don't know, we don't have all the the record, but Laconius is in charge. He's the chief judge. And the sacred relics of kingship that have been kind of associated with the chief judge have departed. They've left the stewardship of the people in charge, and they're put into this priestly line. And what are these things? These things are the plates, both the plates of brass and the plates of Nephi. It's the Liahona. Laban's sword, right? The sword. they have Laban's sword? Yeah. It's the interpreters, the interpreters that they discover that are way back in the past from the brother of Jared. These are the Nephite equivalents of the Holy of Holies. If you think about the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament narrative, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which was made of wood, but overlaid with gold. And inside of it were the stone tablets. Well, when Joseph Smith is introduced to these things, they're put in a stone box. And so instead of a gold box, they're put in a stone box, but the items inside of the box are gold. It's like the inverse or the reversal of the Mosaic Holy of Holies. So in the story of Moses, they have the ark, which is overlaid with gold, and it's filled with the stone tablets and the equivalent of the Liahona would be the pot of manna. By the way, the pot, the manna is called the small round thing. Man, who, what is it is what it means, but it's a small round thing. And when we read the narrative in Nephi's record of the Liahona, it's a small round thing outside the temple door. And they say, well, what is this? So that's kind of the equivalent of, well, what was the manna? It was God leading them and guiding them. And so the Liahona represents that. They have their interpreters, the Urim and Thummim, lights and perfections. That's what the people of Moses had. The sword of Laban would be the equivalent of the sword that David slew Goliath with, which was kept in the Holy of Holies. And so these items, which were associated with kingship and leadership, have left. And so I think this is a subtle hint that Mormon's trying to say this is the beginning of the end at least as far as their government, because no one raises any any stink over this. It'd be as if we had a king and he had a sacred sword and an orb and sacred records, and the government was kind of shaky, and those records go into the line of the priests, and they're not associated with the king anymore. And we're going to see this. You know, we kind of miss these subtle hints in the text, but we Mormon just throws it in our face where he's like, we're going to have a total societal breakdown here. But that distinction is just right there in the beginning of the verse where it says, he gave charge unto his son Nephi, and then he says, concerning those things. Now, I also want to say that Joseph Smith had these things given to him, and we'll put this in the show notes. The last witness to the Book of Mormon, David Whitmer, 
was very clear when he said, I saw these things. And section 17 verse 1 mentions everything that was in the box yeah. as well. So you can see it's documented in our literature. It's a, it's a big deal. And I think there's a symbol here. There's some symbolism. The kings would keep these things as reminders of our history. And we all do that. I mean, we all keep little mementos of sacred moments and great memories. And the idea is we're trying to remember the great things that God has done. By holding on to these mementos, we are remembering that since God has done great things in the past— we trust that he's going to do great things in the future. And so now they're like giving up. They're not holding on to the sacred things that remind them that God has done great things. It's almost as if they've given up on God doing great things in their day. And I think we as Latter-day Saints must never do that. We must never give up the hope that God will be with us No matter what we see in society, we hold on to these sacred things as reminders. All of us have in our possessions things that remind us that God has done great things for us. By them giving these things up, it's almost as if their whole society is just giving up on God and forgetting that he was there for them in the past. So why would they look to him in the future? And this is really is a tragedy that they're doing this. I think it also throws Joseph Smith some some light, some credit. So here, Joseph Smith, he's the custodian of the plates, and he has these items. And David Whitmer, like I said, was one of the last witnesses. And in his witness, he says, I saw them. He says, I saw the sword of Laban, the directors, the ball, which Lehi had, the interpreters. And he says, I saw them as plain as I see this bed. And then he strikes a bed that's near his hand. This is in an interview he does with Orson Pratt. And then Orson says, okay, you saw them. Did you see the angel? And he says, yeah, he was right in front of me. And so he's the last witness. And by the way, David Whitmer, when he gives these witnesses, he's estranged from the church. He's not with the saints. He has no motivation to say he saw this stuff. And so I really like that as the Lord is, he's basically saying, here's a set. You want a secular witness? Here it is. And the, I think the symbolic message is the hope is back. Yeah. That because of the restoration, hope in God taking care of us is back. And Joseph Smith really is the harbinger of that hope. He's the one that's ringing the bell saying, hey, everyone, God is not dead. He doth not sleep. He is going to do mighty things in our day. And we Latter-day Saints need to understand that that's the message we carry to the world. We, the restoration is the message that God has not given up on us and that he really does intend on saving the world and that all the wonderful things he's done in the past, he will do again. And we need to shout that message out because that, the loss of that message is a tragedy. Yeah. A couple of thoughts in this very first chapter, verse eight, they did watch steadfastly. And I think that's what we need to do. And that's that word to reo. It's to keep, it's to watch. We need to be those that watch and we listen to the spirit. And so even though like we've, we've talked about in verse nine, there's this day set apart, the faithful are watching. And I really like Bryce, how you said, how close were they? And how close is this danger? Verse 13, on the morrow, I'm going to come. And then notice what he says to Nephi in verse 14. I come to mine own to fulfill all things which I have made known unto the children of men from the foundation of the world to do the will both of the Father and of the Son 
of the Father because of me and of the Son because of my flesh. And behold, the time is at hand, and this night shall the sign be given. For more commentary on this, go back and listen to the podcast in Mosiah 15, where Abinadi describes the distinction between the Father and the Son. But to be brief and speaking, what I want to just say is that what to me is being said is Jehovah is saying, verse 14, both of the Father and of the Son, of the Father because of me. This is the pre-earth Jehovah speaking, the God of the universe, the one who created all things. He is the Father in this idea, in the sense that he comes from the heavens, and of the Son because of my flesh. The Son, meaning Jesus, the flesh, submits to the will of the Spirit. And so I think this is another explanation of what what Abinadi is teaching in Mosiah 15. And Bryce, don't you love verse 20? I love Every wit, everything the prophet says is going to happen. Everything. I have come to fulfill the law, which means if the Heavenly Father has given you a promise, if the Spirit spoke to you and gave you a promise, we ought to try, we must trust that. He is going to fulfill every promise that he's given. He's going to fulfill the law of Moses. He's going to fill every hope. Sometimes when I watch a movie, I, there are movies I really don't like because of the way they portray Joseph. He doesn't live up to my image of who Joseph was. But I guarantee Jesus will never, ever be a disappointment. He is far beyond our greatest hopes and dreams of what he is and that he will fulfill every single wit of every promise that he's given. But the very next verse, the next couple of verses are very significant. We learn from the first vision that darkness comes before light to prevent the light experience. So don't be surprised if before you go to the temple, there's a whole lot of forces trying to destroy you and prevent you from going to the temple. Or if there's someone trying to get you to not go on a mission, there is darkness that comes before the light. But now in 3 Nephi chapter 1, we learn a great lesson about the darkness that comes and the doubt that comes after the light. So these people see the great sign. But then in verse 22, from that time forth, there began to be lyings sent forth among the people by Satan to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders which they had seen. Now tell me you don't do that. You get an impression from the Lord Maybe you've been praying for a forgiveness of a particular sin, and then the sweet message of the Lord comes and says, you've been forgiven. Now tell me the next day you don't start to question and doubt. Did he really say that, or was that just me? And we do this to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders which they had seen. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, the people began to forget those signs and wonders which they had heard and began to be less and less astonished at a sign or a wonder from heaven, insomuch that they began to harden their hearts. So there is darkness, that there is a temptation that comes before the light to try and discourage you from moving forward and having the light experience. But once you have light, beware of the temptation to doubt it. Because darkness is going to come after the light experience to try and get you to question I would encourage all of you to find Elder Holland's talk, Cast Therefore Not Away Thy Confidence. He addresses that very idea. We'll put it in the show notes for you, but Jeffrey R. Holland, Cast Not Away Therefore Your Confidence. It is phenomenal, and he deals with that idea. If it was true yesterday, if the Spirit spoke to you, if it was true yesterday, it's true today. 
And we need to hold on to that confidence and not cast it away. If you got a message from God, hold on to it. Beware of this natural temptation to doubt our revelation to doubt the things that the Lord is telling us. Bryce, I like that the Book of Mormon points out our tendencies and then also points out the solution. It does. And I I really like that it's in there a couple times. And Bryce, I got to tell you, I've had these same experiences. Right before a spiritual experience, I had this great temptation. Or if you read the Book of Moses, right after he sees Jehovah, then Satan comes. And I can't tell you how often that's happened in my life. And I don't think I'm unique. No. I think this is like all of us, isn't my it? My daughter is an incredible writer, and she gets a mission call, and then she gets an incredible job from the Deseret News offering her a writing position right before she's about to go on a mission. Yeah. And, you know, there's the t- not, not that that's a satanic temptation, but right. there's always that, do you really want to have this light experience? There's always that temptation that's going to try and discourage you from having the light experience. Well, the other side, how many times, Mike, have you had an impression that you relied on, and then afterwards you began to question and doubt, did it really come from the Lord? Did I really receive revelation? And you begin to question the inspiration. And I love that's what, what Scott says, write it down. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. So beware of the temptation to doubt after a spiritual experience has happened. Yeah. Okay. Well, at the end of one, the lines are spread out, the Gadiantans infest the mountains, and some of the Nephites start to defect over. And it's this sadness and loss of faith in the rising generation in verse 29 and 30 is kind of the end. Mormons just kind of expressing that sadness. And then in the second chapter, massive wickedness is going to start growing up. It's the 95th year. So it says just four years and they're starting to forget. And you can cross-reference that with 35, 1, 1 through 19. The whole message there is it's just been like four years. And so, you know, some dating stuff. It's been 609 years since Lehi left Jerusalem. And then they're going to start changing up how they record time. So they're not, they're not going to do, hey, it's the 95th year of the reign of the judges anymore, but they're going to start reckoning time after this sign. And so this is the beginning of the discussion between the Gadiantans and the Nephites. They're going to try to influence them. How, how can they get power over them? There's an interesting passage here in chapter 2, verse 15. And 16, which we've talked about before, but just note that it says that there was this curse taken from the skin of the enemies of the Nephites. It says the skin was taken and that they became white like the Nephites, and their young men and their daughters became exceedingly fair, and they were numbered among the Nephites, and they were called Nephites. And so the distinction between the enemies, the Lamanites, of the, uh, the enemies of the Nephites, the distinction was taken away. I do not believe, this is my interpretation, I do not believe that someone had a massive pigmentation change when they came into Christ and joined the Nephite culture. The way I read verse 15 and 16 is that the the marking of separation that culturally separated someone from the Nephites was removed when they began to have faith in Jesus. We when that to, happened, that was removed. We've talked about this in the podcast. We need to be careful not to make the mistake that so many people make. Again, I remind you of Nicodemus. When Jesus said a man had to be born again, he assumed it was literal, not figurative. Woman at the well, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. She assumed it was literal, not figurative. So we need to be careful because if this is figurative, we need not assume that it's literal. Yeah. And quite often in these things, the Lord is speaking figurative more than he's speaking literal. So, if, But if it you, is significant to point out in verse 12 
that it's no longer Nephites versus Lamanites. It's now righteous versus wicked. Yeah. It's it's all the righteous Lamanites, all the righteous Nephites against the Gadianton robbers. So we're no longer paired up by tribes. We're no longer paired up by families. We're paired up by righteousness. And so all of the Nephites and all of the righteous are on one side, and the Gadianton robbers and all of the wicked. So there's certainly Nephites and Lamanites in the Gadianton robbers. There's Nephites and Lamanites, but we're going to call them Nephites. So it's interesting how they just kind of make that distinction throughout the book. I think verse 13, I'm going to interpret this. It says that the Nephites were threatened with utter destruction. I don't think that means that the Gadiantans want to kill them all. I think it means the utter destruction of their culture, their belief systems, their their views on chastity, their views on Yahweh. You can destroy a people with utter destruction without killing them. You just kill their culture. You kill their religious values. Their and identity. I, th- I think about that a lot because I think about verse 13 and I think about verse 19. It says the sword of destruction did hang over them. And I can't read this without thinking about today, our yeah. time period. Hold on to what you know is true. Yeah. And we see it all the time. People throw out their religious beliefs in order to conform to society. And they, in other words, have destroyed our identity. And we've just become a member of the, you know, the group. We've we've got the mark of the beast on our forehead, and now we can play in their playground because we're we're not we're afraid to stand up and be counted for who we are. Bryce, why don't you share your your ideas on this letter that the Gadiant Robert Chief writes to Laconius, and then maybe I'll do some stuff and and we'll see what happens. I love comparing this letter. I like to pretend that Satan has written a letter to the members of the church trying to talk them out of their virtue and their covenants. Because the they're going to receive a letter from the Gadianton robbers trying to talk them out of their lands. And so it's very similar. So I want you to show you, I want to show you all the methods that Satan is going to try and take in order to try and talk members of the church, especially the youth. When I talk to the youth, I say, don't be surprised if he tries these tactics. In fact, usually when I introduce this chapter, I usually will pull a young woman up and have her sit in front of the class and I'll give her a hymn book. And I'll say, now don't give up that hymn book, okay? You hold on to that hymn book. And then I will say, all right, guys, if your job was to get the hymn book away from her, what would you try? And they would try all these different methods. One person would try to sweet talk it. They'd come up and say, hey, Michelle, you are so beautiful. I love you. Could I have that hymn book? And we would write on the board, what did he just try? What technique did he try? Well, flattery was a technique. And then I wouldn't allow them to do it, but I'd say, what else might you do? Well, you might threaten her. You might say, give me that hymn book or I will hit you. And so we would just talk about all the different techniques that you might use to get this hymn book away from this young woman. And then the point is, okay, Satan's going to use all these same techniques to get virtue out of you, to get have you give up your covenants and your virtue. So let's look at some of these techniques that he uses. For example, verse 2, I do give unto you exceedingly great praise. So flattery. Satan is going to try and flatter us to give up our lands and our covenants. Um, But then he also says things like, that which you suppose to be your right, as if that which you do so call, and he's trying to sow seeds of doubt. It's very common for Satan to start to say those types of little hints that sow seeds of doubt. 
um, verse 3, now it's just pure intimidation and threat. It seemeth a pity unto me that you should be so foolish and vain as to suppose that you can stand against so many brave men who are at my command. We're going to crush you. So it's just complete threats, intimidation. Satan is going to try and intimidate you out of your covenants. There's another one in verse 4 where he says, um, I know of their unconquerable spirit having proved them in the field of battle. In other words, he's going to boast of his strength to destroy you. Satan will quite often wave his arms at the strength of the enemy. How can you stand against us? Look how many people will turn against you if you stay faithful to your covenants. This is kind of what they did in war. They did it anciently. They even they even did this during World War II. They had the public information officer on the speaker as the American forces were coming in and they would be shouting at the Americans, you guys are all going to die. We're, you know, there's so many of us. This isn't anything new. Is no, it? none of these techniques are new. Middle of verse four, because of the many wrongs which you have done unto them. He's trying to twist it as if to say, this is your fault. He's going to guilt them. Now, how many Latter-day Saints have been guilted into giving up virtue? You owe me. This is your duty. I had a young woman who told me she said her boyfriend was making it her fault that she was holding on to her virtue because he says, you're making, this is a quote, you're making me suffer yeah. because you're doing this. That's a technique. And I told her, I said, you know what? You are not causing him to suffer. That's a technique. But man, they're going to use that to get you to give up your virtue. Um, verse five, feeling for your welfare, insincerity. He does not care about you. Lucifer does not care about you. But the world and all of Satan's followers are going to try and fake this sincerity as if to say, oh, we feel so badly that you're going to be destroyed or that you can't drink and, and smoke. We, we feel so badly for you. He's kind of hinting that they're deluded. He says, because of the firmness in which you believe. Yeah. We understand you guys believe it, but you guys are deluded. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But and it is that that which you believe to be right. It's, that, it's always that you believe to be right. It's always that hint of doubt. Um, again, in verse 6, end of verse 6, rather that you should visit you with the sword and destruction should come upon you. It's that threat. You better yield or you're going to destroy. And then I love that the idea here is, if you do yield, we'll leave you alone. Not only that, notice what he promises them. If then verse, verse 7. seven that's yeah. a great and one. They're promising it, something they can't give. It's peer pressure here. If you unite with us and become acquainted with our secret works and become our brethren, that you may be like unto us, not our slaves, but our brethren and partners of all our substance. And the irony here is they can't even offer that because that's why they have to steal substance. They don't have anything to give. But the idea here is join us, accept us. You'll be part of us. You'll be, you'll be accepted into the group. They're playing on the idea that I want the world to accept me. Do you remember the um, amlicite marks we talked about? That if you just put on the world's marks, then the world will accept you. And that's the promise. If you stop keeping your covenants, if you just let go of this identity of Christ and put on the identity of the world, then the world will accept you. 
I love where it says you're going to be uh, partners with our substance. Yeah. Uh, there, that seems to always be one of Satan's lies is if you join me, you're going to get free stuff and you don't have to work for it. And the the irony here is, well, if everybody's getting free stuff and we don't have to work for it, who's making the free stuff? That's right. <laughs> I love Thomas Jefferson where he says, any government that's powerful enough to give you something must first take it away. And we just seem to forget that. Yeah. Anyway, th- I think they're just, genius marketers. This is just so typical of so many different situations where people are trying these te- te- techniques. Um, verse 10, that this my people may recover their rights and government who have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining from them their rights of government. And except ye do this, I will avenge their wrongs. Don't believe their false justifications for attacking you. Don't let them make you feel guilty. Now, these are the tactics, and you're gonna, as you read that list, you're going to find a whole lot more. But that's the tactic that Satan is using trying to get us to walk away from our covenants. Now, how do we defend ourselves? I love what Laconius does to defend himself against these techniques. So let's make another list. Starting in verse 12, he says that Laconius could not be frightened by the demands and the threats of a robber. He could not be frightened. It's that attitude, I will not let fear make my decisions. I will not take counsel from my fears. And I love that. Do not let fear make your decisions. Boy K. Packer said that. He said we shouldn't take counsel from our fears. Sometimes I think that's a big fear a lot of young people have that are they're not in high school, but they're not married. And what are they afraid of, Bryce? Right. They're afraid of they're afraid of failure. They're afraid of isolation. They're afraid of not receiving the promises that Heavenly Father has given them. They're Do I get married? Is it going to be okay? And I think that the prophets would say, well, you should get married and you should continue to live your life, even in the midst of this chaos, yeah. right? Don't take counsel from your fears. Yeah. And then the next one, he did not hearken. He did not hearken. Um, end of verse 12, he did cry unto the Lord for strength. Beautiful. So not frightened, not hearken, cry unto the Lord. Verse 13, they did gather together unto one place. And I think the idea here is there is strength, gathering. That's why we go to church. That's why we go to the temple. We gather. The Lord says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be also. There is strength that comes from gathering with like-minded people. Verse 14, they built fortifications. They built the fortifications that would strengthen them. I love that. Have you built, what are your built fortifications? That's why we have temples. That's what our homes should be. Everyone should have a fortification. Seminary and institute needs to become a fortification. Family dinner. Family dinner is a fortification. And that the strength thereof should be exceedingly great. We need exceedingly strong fortifications. I think children need to know that it's going to be okay. They come home from school and they need a mom and a dad who they're strong and they say, you know what, we're going to make it. It's going to be okay. I'm reading a book right now about a poor family and the mother's dead and the dad's an alcoholic and these kids are just in a mess. And I read this and I think, man, where, where do we... They don't where, have a safe place. Where do we go if we don't have a safe place? Yeah. Where do we go if we don't have families? Yeah. And so what does Satan do today? 
tries to break up the family, yeah. right? I think the fortification of the family is a big one. Big one. And then I love the end of verse 14. They set guards round about to watch them and to guard them from the robbers day and night. And that's what mom and dad should be. That's what bishops and stake presidents are. They are guards set round about to guard them from the robbers day and night. We have to have fortifications where there are guards set round about. And just I remind everyone that one of the blessings of the temple is when you put on that garment, you receive a, a protection, you receive a guard and that there are angels that are set to guard and round us and protect us from robbers. But verse 15 is important. There are things we need to change. And so the Lord says, repent. They do need to repent. They do need to change some things. Verse 16 is the next one on our list. And that is, they exert themselves in their might to do according to the words of Laconius. Follow your leaders. Follow the prophet. Do you remember the stripling warriors chose to follow a prophet? And that's why they were miraculously preserved in battle. They exerted themselves in their might to do according to righteous leaders. And then I love the comment about righteous leaders, because if you look down on verse 19, it says that their chief captains, some of them that had the spirit of revelation and also prophecy, and this Gidgidoni was a great prophet among them, and he was their chief judge. So especially the leaders that have the spirit of revelation and prophecy are the ones we should listen and then a couple more, verse 21. Um, I love that they fight them in the center of their lands. Symbolic there that we fight in our hearts. We fight the battle in our homes. We get them out of our homes. I don't necessarily need to go out there and defeat the enemy. We fight the enemy in the center of our lands. That's the most important battle of them all, is that we win the center of our lands. And then my favorite one, I love verse 26, Laconius pleads with them that they should be strong with armor. And we all need to remember Doctrine and Covenant section 27, the armor of God, that we must put on the armor of God and be strong with our armor. And it's just, if, as you and your family study Third Nephi chapter 3 and talk about this, the attack and the threats, and then you get to that last verse and just have a family discussion about being strong with armor, it would be very beneficial to go through all of the different weapons described in Doctrine and Covenants 27 and say, why is it we need a breastplate? What does the breastplate protect? What are we guarding here? What is What are our weapons? But I love that response because you will find that the world threatens us just like these guys were threatened, and our response is vital. Now, because they respond that way, what is the end result? In chapter 4, here come the Gadianton robbers, verse 10. Well, verse 8, they lift up their cries unto God that he would spare them, verse 10. The Nephites did not fear them, but they did fear their God and did supplicate him for protection. And then one of the, my favorite phrases about this whole thing, end of verse 10, in the strength of the Lord, they did receive them. I love that if you have a fortification, if you go to your fortification, 
if the temple is your fortification, when your children go to your home and home is the fortification, when they go out and face the enemy, that phrase is significant. In the strength of the Lord, they did receive them. And we will win. They are victorious. Um, Middle of verse 12, the Nephites did beat them. They won. And then they they run back. I love verse 15. Where do they run back to? Third Nephi 4, after they defeat the Gadianton robbers, they run back to their place of security. Do you see the message for Latter-day Saint families and homes? This is why we have chapels and temples and institute classes and seminary classes. And this is why even there's podcasts so that we can create this place of security so that when you go out and you face the enemy, you can face the enemy in the strength of the Lord. Beautiful little story here, Mike. I like it. I like that. One of the things that I really like too in here, we're back to this idea of warfare and how do we fight war. If you look in 35.3 verse 20, this says the people, they prayed and they said, let us go up to the mountains and go fight them. And then the response, yeah, no, we're not doing that. We're not going on the offensive. And how do, we, how do we apply that today? I think we need to be really careful if we're going out and we're just slinging arrows at people that are different than us, even if they're wrong, even if we're totally convinced we're, we're, they're wrong. I think one of the principles over and over again in the Book of Mormon is hit of this idea that we're not going to go on offensive warfare. And I remind you, we talked about rules of when is conflict justified, and conflict is only justified if we are not guilty of the second offense, and it's that you, you can't be the aggressor, you can't be the one that initiates conflict. The Lord is not going to be on our side when we do that. Yeah. But we will fight them. We will fight the center of our lands. We will make sure evil does not come into the center of our lands. That's where we do fight. And that's the fight we've got to win. We have to draw a line somewhere. So they draw that line in verse 21, the center of their lands, and in verse 13, they're one body. In the middle of verse 25, chapter 3, they're in one land and one body, and they're crying mightily to God. And they're also storing up food. Like, you know, the Nephites are ready for them. In the fourth chapter, they're back to this idea of being in one body. And it, notice what Mormon says in verse 5 of 3 Nephi 4. It says, It came to pass that in the 19th year, Gideonhi found that it was expedient that he should go to the battle against the Nephites, for there was no way that they could subsist, save it were to plunder and rob and murder. That's the only way they're going to be able to to feed themselves is they're they're putting the, the Nephites under tribute or they're just flat out stealing from them. And they're having a hard time spreading across the land because if they plant crops, they're going to be taken out by the Nephites. And then we get this really interesting phrase that Mormon puts in in verse 7 and 8. And it came to pass, they did come up to battle. It was in the sixth month. And behold, great and terrible was the day that they did come to battle. And they were girded about after the manner of robbers, and they had a lamb skin about their loins, and they were dyed in blood. And their heads were shorn, and they had head plates upon them, and great and terrible was the appearance of the armies of Gideon High because of their armor and because of their being dyed in blood. There's so much, I think, that Mormon's assuming that we know or that is part of his culture. And so a lot of this has to do with the cleanliness laws in the Torah. And some references are Leviticus 12, Leviticus 6, and Leviticus 17. There was this idea that, you know, if you have association with blood, you got to clean that off. 
Well, these guys are doing the opposite. They're dyeing their skins with blood. This was also some things that some people, some of the cultures in America anciently were doing is they would dye animal skins and they would do this to basically scare their opponents. And so this is a taunting technique. There's other authors that suggest that this idea of the lamb skin could be symbolic of them mocking the priesthood of the Nephite. And so we'll link those in the show notes and you can read up on that and see if that fits for you. I think there's some stuff going on here where they're not only attacking them physically, but they're also making fun of them or mocking them spiritually. And so it's like this double warfare. We read this throughout the text, especially in the book of Revelation, that Satan is on the offensive both physically and spiritually. I do want to comment on the name Laconius. The name Laconius in the text is actually a Greek name. And some enemies of the church have come out and said, well, what's a Greek name like Laconius or Timothy? Later, we're going to read a guy by the name of Timothy. That's a Greek name too. What's that doing in the Book of Mormon? I thought the Book of Mormon was a record of people that came across the ocean from the Levant, from from the Middle East. And so what do the Greeks have to do with this? And so just know that there was a long period of time when people thought that the, the Greeks didn't really have an association with these people. And so I want to just share this idea with you. This is from a book by Eric Klein, and it's called 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. And I remember when I read this book for the first time, and just so many connections went off in my head. And in the 1980s, they discovered this ship off the coast of Turkey. And it was a Canaanite ship. And it was loaded with cargo from Egypt and from the land of Canaan and from Greece and all over. In fact, they can even date it. There was a dagger in this ship that had Nefertiti's name on it. And it was spelled in such a way that they know they can pinpoint when it was made because Nefertiti's name was only spelled that way for a window of five years in ancient history. So the scholars that got a hold of this dagger, they're like, well, we know when this dagger was minted. And Eric Klein's point in this book is there was something that happened right about the turn of the Bronze Age, right around 1177, when there was this massive financial collapse and a shifting of all these people. And this ship that comes out of this time period, it's a 50 foot long ship. And he just goes on and on describing the cargo that was in the ship. And his conclusion is this. He essentially says that the world was highly connected back then. He says, we may never know who sent this ship on its voyage and where it was going and why, but it's clear that this ship contained a microcosm of the international trade and contacts that were ongoing in the Eastern Mediterranean and across the Aegean Sea during the early 13th century BC. Not only were the goods from at least seven different areas, but judging from the personal possessions the archaeologists found in the shipwreck, there were also at least two Mycenaeans on board, even though the ship was a Canaanite ship. Clearly, the ship does not belong to a world of isolated civilizations, kingdoms, and fiefdoms, but rather to an interconnected world of trade, migration, diplomacy, and alas, war. This truly was the first global age. I like his connections. Now, he's not Latter-day Saint. He's not trying to prove anything about the Book of Mormon. He's just simply writing about what was going on in 1200 BC. And so as I read his book years ago, I thought, okay, what's a Greek name doing in the Book of Mormon? And my thought goes something like this, and I don't know if I'm right, but I'm just thinking out loud here. 
what if when the Mulekites left, we have this royal lineage that escapes out of Judea? What if there are people that have Greek heritage? We know this, that the Philistines were the sea peoples. They came from the Aegean, and they're constantly at war in the 10th century with David. We know archaeologically that they came from that area. And so we know that there was some interconnection there. And so my take on this is maybe the Laconius comes from the Zarahemlite strain of the historical narrative of the Book of Mormon. Because if we think about it, the Nephites, pure Nephites, were really in the minority. The Zarahemla clan, that's the big group. They become Nephites when they follow Yahweh. So I read this and I just say to the critics who say, well, the Book of Mormon can't be true because it has a Greek name. I say, well, I think history and archaeology say that there's a lot of mixing going on. We have no idea. This idea that Lehi came to an empty continent is absolutely false. Yeah. By the way, Bryce, I love the stuff where you do, here's Satan's tactics, but it doesn't doesn't leave us hanging. It's like, no, here's the solution. Yeah, every time in the Book of Mormon. The whole time you were talking about that, you know what I was thinking of? I'm thinking of today. Now, I'm not going to get specific, but I'm like, this stuff's happening now. Right now. Exactly. Now, for me, the next point is also significant. So they, they, they win this great victory against the Gadianton robbers. And to get our time period, look at 3 Nephi 4, verse 16. It's, tw- it's in the 21st year. Now, turn the, cha- turn the page to chapter 5, verse 1. There was not a living soul among the people of Nephi who did doubt in the least the words of all the holy prophets. I'm going to shout that out. In 21 AD, there was not a living soul among them who did doubt in the least the words of the holy prophets. If they hold on for 13 years, 34 AD, they will feel the nail marks in his hands. All they have to do is be faithful for 13 years. Just maintain this righteousness for 13 years. Chapter 5, verse 3, they did forsake all their sins, they abandoned their, and their abominations, their whoredoms, they did serve God with all their diligence. Uh, verse 4, they preached the word of God. They're a righteous people. Now, chapter 5, verse 7, the, 26th year pa- the 22nd year passes, the 23rd, the 24th, and the 25th year passes. So they've gone from 21 to 25. They just went four years. All they have to do is hang on. They've made it to 25. They just need nine more years. So go to chapter 6, verse 1, they return to their lands. Verse 3, there's peace in all the land. Verse 4, there's great order. There's equity and justice. Now we get some dates in verse 4. The 26th and the 27th year. And then verse 5 is an ominous prediction. There was nothing in all the land to hinder the people from prospering continually, except they should fall into transgression. Do you see that just hint from Mormon? Verse 9, the 28th year passes, and the people had continual peace. Verse 10, the 29th year. So remember, 29, and he comes in 34. They're now five years away. In the 29th year, all I have to do is stay. They've been faithful from the time they conquered the Gadianton robbers was 21. It's now 29. They've gone eight years. And all they have to do is five more. And yet, verse 10, some were lifted up into pride and boastings because of their exceedingly great ranks. Verse 12, they're distinguished by ranks. Verse 14, there's a great inequality in the land, and the church began to be broken up. 
Verse 15, Satan had great power. Verse 16, Satan did lead away the hearts of the people to do all manner of iniquity. And then verse 17, this commentary from Mormon, the people having been delivered for the space of a long time to be carried about by the temptations of the devil, whithersoever he desired to carry them and to do whatsoever iniquity he desired that they should. And then we hit verse 17, the fateful year of 30. Their four years, all they had to do was make it four years and they would feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet. And they would, they would hear him speak. But by the end of verse 17, in the year 30, they were in an awful, a state of awful wickedness. Verse 18, they did not sin ignorantly, for they knew the will of God concerning them, for it had been taught unto them. Therefore, they did willfully rebel against God. Oh, they came close. But in the year 30, Remember, back in 21, there was not a single doubter. And now chapter 7, verse 2, they separate into tribes, they destroy the government. Now verse 7, 3 Nephi 7, 7. The more righteous part of the people had nearly all become wicked. Yea, there were but few righteous among them. So in the matter in, in nine years, from twenty-one to thirty, they had gone from not a single doubter to but few righteous among them. And then verse eight, he makes the Mormon makes the great analogy. They had returned to their sins like a dog to its vomit. There was a reason the dog vomited it out. Why would you return to it? And I think the point here is, now we need to be careful with this point, because in this gospel we believe in repentance, and repentance is always available. But there are some blessings that are lost in the last minute. And I speak particularly of one that I've watched a lot of young men and young women lose in the final minutes, and that's a mission. They were faithful for their whole life, and then the, just the final years, the final moments right before their mission. And they end up losing that blessing. Sometimes we lose the ability to go into the temple and perform the sealing. Now, again, that doesn't mean we can't be sealed later. I get that. But sometimes the memory of starting off, the ability to start your marriage off in the temple is lost in the final moments. And I think the point the Book of Mormon is trying to make here is hold on. Hold on to the very end. Don't lose the blessing in the final moments. They were faithful for so long. And then when they got four years away, they lost the blessing. And they're going to continue in that wickedness. And now some of the very righteous, some of the people that in 21 AD would have qualified to feel the nail marks in his hands are now going to be among those that will be destroyed in the wickedness because they couldn't hold on till the end. Don't lose the blessing in the final moments. It's also a complete collapse of their government. If you look in 7.2, it says, they were divided one against another, and they did separate one from another into tribes, every man according to his family and his kindred and his friends. And thus it is, they did destroy the government of the land. And every tribe kind of vies for, hey, listen to me and, and do this. And notice the end of verse 5, they did yield themselves unto the power of Satan. 
And like you read in verse seven, there were a few among them that were good. And part of it, I think, is because they're stirred up. They're stirred up to anger. I mean, how many times does it pop up? I mean, you look in verse 21 of chapter six, that there were many of the people who were exceedingly angry. They willfully rebel against God at the end of verse 18. Look at verse 15. Satan had great power unto the stirring up of the people to do all manner of iniquity. I think more than ever in our day today, we live in a world where we can get stirred up. And I think what Mormon is trying to say is we need to listen to the right voices and we need to find a way that we can not be stirred up, that we can have equality. Another thing that I found really interesting in these passages is what they do to the Gadiantans. They have a couple of wars with them, right? They beat them back. And then they go back and they go get them. Let's go to chapter four. Chapter four, they they fight them because there's this huge want of food. And the Nephites know that the Gadians are struggling. And so they go in chapter four, verse 25, they march and they get in their front and in their rear. That's the end of verse 25. And then notice what it says. The robbers who were on the south were cut off in the places of retreat. And then verse 27 says, there were many thousands who did yield themselves up prisoners. And then they kill Zemnaraha, however you're going to say his name, verse 28. They hang him on a tree. This reminds me of being hung on a tree from the people that suffer an ignominious death in Alma. And then notice what happens. They call on God's name for protection and their hearts are swollen with joy. That's verse 30 and 33. And they're humble. And then they have this massive prison reform. And if the prisoners repent, they're let loose. So if you look in 5.4, it came to pass that when they had taken all the robbers prisoners insomuch that none did escape who were not slain, they did cast their prisoners into prison and did cause that the word of God should be preached unto them. And as many as would repent and enter into a covenant, they were set free. And I just love that. I love this idea of I don't believe in a a great society as one that just throws everybody in jail. Jail is just a place where we get you to where we get your heart right. And when your heart's right, we get you out. And so I don't, like I said, I don't have the answers, but I love the Nephite answer is where these guys repent and then they get out. This idea that they just got to hold on for four more years, I think is an invitation to us to think about where we are. Because if you think about it, whether or not you live to see the second coming None of us are here very long. And I see examples of this where somebody lives their whole life faithful and then towards the end, they're like, ah, and then they just kind of quit. And I think we're not here very long. Just be faithful because when we die and we're on the path, we don't fall off the path. Another thing I really want to draw out of these chapters, and this is talked about other places in the Book of Mormon, but if you take a good look at 3 Nephi 6, look at verse 2. It came to pass that they had not eaten up all their provisions and they did take with them all that they hadn't devoured their grain and their gold and their precious things. And it says, they granted unto those robbers who had entered into a covenant of peace that they could have their lands and they established peace. And then verse four, they waxed great. Mormon is trying to show that these guys have a lot of hope. And then look in verse four, it says that there was great order in the land and they had formed their laws according to equity and justice. That is a value that's all the, all over the place in the Old Testament, that Yahweh is the God of fairness and justice. And there's not inequality in God's kingdom, that people 
are not put into classes of distinctions of the uber wealthy and the super poor, but that there's equality. That seems to be a value that's really held in the Old Testament. And it seems to me to be a fundamental value of Lehi's children, that they believe that, at least the Nephites do, that this is important, that God wants a place of order and justice and equity. And then you get verse five, and this is the point I want to draw out. It says, there was nothing in all the land to hinder the people from prospering continually, except they should fall into transgression. It seems as if Mormon's trying to say that the Lord has set the table for these people to be successful, and there really is nothing standing in the way except for themselves. And I think about this, I live in the United States of America, and I just think there's so much opportunity for us to be successful, and it's as if God has set the table for us to be successful in this land. Now, I know not all the listeners out there are listening from the United States of America, but if you think about this, if you live in a free country, I think these principles still apply. It reminds me of the words of Abraham Lincoln, and this is a speech that he gave back in 1838. So he wasn't the president at the time, but he was he was drawing out some of these ideas that we read right here in 3 Nephi 6, 5. And he says this, he says, we find ourselves in the peaceful possession of the fairest portion of the earth. I like that. And he talks about how cool the climate is where he lives. And he says, we are the legal inheritors of these fundamental blessings. We toil not in the acquirement or establishment of them, They're the legacy that was bequeathed to us by a once hardy, brave, patriotic, but now lamented and departed race of ancestors. And so Abraham Lincoln basically says, listen, we've inherited this. We didn't earn it, but our forefathers, they made this happen. And then later in his speech, he says, well, what are we going to do? He says, how shall we then perform it? At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step across the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure of the earth, our own accepted, in their military chest, with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. At what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. Abraham Lincoln. He said that on January 27th, 1838. I really think that's what Mormon's trying to say about the Nephites. Like Bryce said, by year 21, everyone believes. They have massive prison reform. They've defeated the Gadianton robbers. They've seen the sign. They know that Jesus is going to come. And then what happens? They get distinguished by ranks in 3 Nephi 6. They get lifted up in pride. They get inequality. Satan stirs them up. And by the time you get to verse 18, they willfully rebel against God. All of this happened in such a short time period. And I think about that a lot. I think about the collapse of societies. Why did Rome collapse? Why do great societies collapse? And sometimes, at least to me, it seems to come down to some of these same things. These same things affect multiple empires and multiple peoples. And I don't think the Nephites are alone. We're going to see this again in the book of Ether. It just seems to happen over and over and over again.
I want to talk a little bit about chapter five, where Mormon tells you what he's doing. This is an account where Mormon is describing what it's like to be a prophet, but also what it's like to be a scribe. And this is what we believed happened with the Old Testament, that there were actual scribes that wrote down words of the prophets, and somebody had to decide what made it in and what didn't make it in. And so if you look in verse 8, he says, there were many things which I saw, but they cannot be written in this book. He says that these things transpired before his eyes. And he said, this book contains not even a hundredth part of what was done among my people in the space of 25 years. But behold, there are records which do contain all the proceedings of this people, and a shorter but true account was given by Nephi. So this is Mormon kind of describing that there was a massive record, the annals of the people, a shorter record that was kept by Nephi. And then he says in verse 10, I have made mine account of these things according to the record of Nephi. So my translation of that is, Mormon is taking Nephi's record and he's abridging that. And he's adding in his inspired midrash or his inspired commentary. And then he says in verse 11, I do make the record on plates, which I have made with mine own hands. And so he describes his work as a scribe, that he's actually doing this. And then I love verse 13. He kind of takes a time out from talking about being a scribe and talks about what he really is. He says, behold, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the son of God. I have been called of him to declare his word among his people that they might have everlasting life. I remember memorizing that verse on my mission and my mission in the Chicago mission, we would quote that verse. And I remember the spirit I felt as we would quote it. And I think everyone out there who loves Jesus can say, I am a disciple. I am a follower of Jesus. And I want to declare his word. I want to share the truth of who he is. And I just love that. And then he goes on and he just talks about how he's a pure descendant of Lehi in verse 20. And then he says this, and all of this scribal activity that he's doing and all of his prophecy and all of his editing, he, he hammers this idea home in verse 23. And surely shall he again bring a remnant of the seed of Joseph to the knowledge of the Lord their God. And as surely as the Lord liveth, he will gather us. He says, as surely as the Lord liveth, he will gather in from the four quarters of the earth all the remnant of the seed of Jacob who are scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. And he has covenanted that he would do it, that he would restore us. In verse 26, they're going to know Jesus. And so in essence, to me, I really like chapter five. I really like it as Mormon telling us who he is, but then better yet, why he's doing it. As surely as God lives, he's going to gather us. And so that in essence, to me, are some of the important points of third Nephi. So now, Mike, you can see we're setting up for the Savior to come with all of this chaos, the government's destroyed, they've broken into tribes, and now this sets us up for the coming of the Savior. And so I would just remind everyone that if you do hold faithful, now not everyone turns wicked, if you do hold faithful, I know this is kind of a gloomy chapter to end on, but if you do hold faithful, that's the blessing we're going to see next week where they feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet and they know and they know it's him and they get to have that experience. So if you and I will be faithful through the very end, through all those challenges and we don't give up our lands and we don't give up no matter what tactic the enemy tries, we hold on faithful. You've got to see that next week is the reward where we get to be with Christ and he wipes away all of our tears. So 
I'm looking forward to the positive that's going to come next week. Yeah. So with it's that, it's rough, but it gets better. It will. So hang on till next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.